This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. about whether or not change can be made from within the belly of the beast. And I gave that example at the beginning of the show where I said, by the time you're in the belly of the beast, the beast done chewed you, salivated around you, stomach gases and juices have masticated and broken you down. So by the time a lot of us get to the belly of the beast, we're so beaten down that our ability to be effective is then up for question. And nowhere do we see that more than when we are talking about uh, police officers, officers of African descent going into police departments that are notoriously uh, anti-black or or racist in their approach to policing and do so in ways that are racially disparate. And when we talk about black cops, we have often had conversation about wanting to empower our police officers to go into these spaces to make a difference. And and a number of you, I've met a number of you listeners who are part of the police force and you are there because you want to make a difference. And we pray that you're able to do so. But every once in a while, We come across somebody who has attempted to do just that and has run smack head into a wall of resistance, the likes of which many of us cannot fully contemplate. I'm joined right now by Edwin Raymond. He's a 15-year veteran of the New York Police Department, one of the nation's leading voices on criminal justice reform. He himself has received numerous accolades, including the film I mentioned at the very beginning of the show, the award-winning documentary Crime Punishment, which follows a lawsuit that he and fellow officers brought against the NYPD. That's actually where he and I first met years ago when that film was first coming out. And he has been a part of and was featured in the New York Times Magazine cover story, A Black Police Officer's Fight Against the NYPD. And in his latest book, An Inconvenient Cop, he goes even further, detailing why he left the NYPD, how he did not see a path forward for reform working within the system, but how he plans to continue using his voice to make it better. Uh, should I say Officer Edwin or no more officers? Just it, Edwin. Edwin, yeah. it is a real pleasure to have you here, Edwin Raymond. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Do you hear him? I mean, I want to make sure. Okay. Uh, listen, I remember meeting you years ago. and At the, at the BAM. At the BAM, yes, yeah. at Brooklyn Academy of Music. There was a film screening, and I remember sitting in that audience watching the film and watching you, and I think it was 11 other officers. Mm-hmm. It was 12 of you who were... People of, of color, like not even just all black, but people of color and and were really grappling with what it meant to be dealing with what we were then learning about at that time, the quotas that were being mandated and being put on you. There was a lot of secret recordings and tapes that were coming out at the time that showed that the NYPD was proactively fostering policies that were anti-black. And I remember wrestling with it and, and grappling with it. And you all spoke so eloquently about that. Talk with us about your journey from entering the police force and, and how you got to this point where 15 plus years years later you have now seen a different side of things yeah uh, again thank you for for even having me um you know this is a discussion that it, it tends to be like a roller coaster you know one minute a situation goes viral we're all on it everyone's outside we saw what happened three years ago with george floyd mm. but then the distractions come back and we wait for the next viral moment and that's you know that's one of the main reasons why i've decided to to move forward I'm tired of that pattern. It's piecemeal and it'll never get us anywhere. Mm. Um, So in terms of my personal journey, uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, East Flatbush, still live in East Flatbush. Parents migrated from Haiti. Uh, Lost my mom at at three years old as a Mm. toddler. My father didn't speak English. He was, we were impoverished. You know, it was a very tough upbringing. Um, But despite that, I I walked a very straight line. But that didn't stop the NYPD from from messing with me. You Mm. know, 15, 16 years old, the stop and first start. And at first, because I know how difficult the community can be when it comes to certain crimes and violence, 
at first I kind of write it off as, well, you know, it's a tough neighborhood, et cetera, but then it just never stops. Mm. And it, it gets frustrating. Yeah. And then at 18, it finally happens, uh, life-changing, where it's it's a black cop, finally. You know, it's a Dominican mm. Dominican brother that, not only did he stop me, but, and, I, and I show, I'm sure so many people could relate to this, he was he was far rougher than yeah. the others, you understand? And, yeah. and it, a week later, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that's when I made a crazy decision at 18 that I was going to join the New York City Police Department to see, mm. like, I want to see the the pipes myself. I want to see the inner workings behind the curtain, under the hood, to see what can be done to change it. So at 22 years old, I joined the police department. And one of the first things that was shocking to me, Larry, was, um, you know, in the academy, after six months in the academy, I could not pinpoint what it was about the training that led to the experiences that I knew I experienced, mm. right? And I, I went to school in Manhattan, and high school in Manhattan, the the students are from all five boroughs. So there were times where I'd be frustrated with what what I went through over the weekend with cops, and, you know, a friend from Harlem is saying the same thing. One from Stapleton is saying the same thing. Mott Haven, mm. Jamaica, Queens, and we're all in different parts of the city. The only thing we have in common is that we're all black and Latino, and yet we're all having the same experiences with cops. Mm. Um, so I'm like, I know this thing is ubiquitous, right? But yet in the in the training, I still couldn't see it. And then day one, graduated the academy, day one, we were given these three numbers, four, 10, and 10. And I'm mm. like, is this an address? You know, I'm confused. And that's when it was explained to us that we have to get four arrests, 10 summonses, and 10 stop and frisk every month. You know, no matter what. And so that's, this is a quota system, to quota. be clear. Like 100%. These were the expectations at bare minimum. And that's, if you exceed that, that's fine, I would imagine. Yeah, but well, at bare minimum. Yeah, when you exceed that, that's when you start to get perks. You start to get, oh. you know, the, the commanding. So if you want to make movement in the police department, the commanding officer, the person in charge of the precinct, has to give, basically they have to sanction it. Hmm. It's called a, a CO's recommendation. High, highly, You have to get highly recommended. Um, the, the only way to do that is to make the commander look good. The only way to make the commander mm. look good is to get and exceed your numbers. Um, and so it's like, it's a reward system. It's a, it's a system that officers are literally incentivized to behave the way that we're seeing. Because I would, you know, the first two months out of the academy, I'm watching people I know who were good people. I spent yeah. six months with them in the academy. And one, one sister, I'm like, you have a, you, you have a black son at seven years old. Ooh. What was that out there? Like, you don't think that could be your son? And she, you know, she was frozen. She was like, oh, no, I got vacation coming up, so I'm trying to get it out the way. Because oh, in the NYPD, God. right, you work 20, you're expected to work 20 days out of the month. Mm. And if the, if the quota is 4, 10, and 10, if you only work 10 days, they don't, they don't adjust it to 2, 5, and 5. So they're not going to pr prorate the quota. Exactly. You wow. still got to bring your 4, 10, and 10. So she was extra aggressive because she had vacation, which would have el eliminated five days out of the 20. So in only 15 days, she had to be more aggressive to meet that quota. And I'm watching this, right? Damn. I know. You know, because just backtrack a little. When we first exposed the quota seven years ago, you know, I would I would read comments like, you know, and water's wet, the sky is blue. Who doesn't know this? We're not just exposing an annoyance. Right. I am telling you, this right. is central to the to almost everything you're seeing. And what I've done is I've collected articles from other whistleblowers regarding police quotas throughout this nation. Mm. And I, I put together a horrible, terrible pattern where, for instance, San, Sandra Bland, the town in Texas where, you know, she was um, arrested. And, you know, we end up seeing the video from the body camera, the right. the dash cam, and her own recording, which right. came out later. That was a quota town. 
two months before Sandra Bland got pulled over, an officer risked his career exposing the quota. My God. We have not been responding properly to what these quotas mean. Mm. We just we just write it off as, you know, the, you know, the system. This is what. No, this I'm telling you so many situations where I'm watching police officers, how they behave. I'm like, that's that's the quota. Then I'll Google the police department mm. and eventually I'll find it. You know, you know what I'll find? A lot of smaller police departments, when they're looking for new leadership, they look for retiring NYPD captains and chiefs. Because they're so good at it. Exactly. So what happens Ooh. is those those captains, those chiefs, the executives, they recreate what they know, mm. which is Comstat quotas, broken windows policing. You know, it's all they know. It's how they were judged. It's how it's the metrics that was used to determine their efficiency. And they literally just spread the cancer throughout the nation. And today, this is what we have. This is what we're left. But let me pause you right there, because sure. if I heard you correctly, this might be what they know, what they're good at, what they excel at. But it's not what they were trained in. Bridge for us that that you go you go from your six months is six months in in, in, academy, in, in academy six months in the academy. And then there is something that shifts. You get your first assignment and you're like, okay, everything you learned at the academy has to be filtered through this quota, this quota gaze. Is there at no point, because I'm imagining the sister that you spoke with, I hope she had a terrible vacation. I hope her vacation was awful. But was <laughs> Larry, there... That's not nice. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm not being nice. But was there any point where you and your other academy members were like, what the fuck is that? Like, what? what is like... So I'll be honest. I used to say that, but I just saw how people, because I realized the difference between me. It took me a while because I, I, for three years, I walked around upset, especially at my fellow black cops. Because mm. I'm like, how do, how do we come from this? Mm. And you just do this. But that's when I realized they just trying to pay their bills. I signed up for a mission. Damn. They signed up because. You came here to change the NYPD. You know I mean? As crazy and, as that sounds for yeah. a 22 year old. You know, imagine having your bachelor's degree and, you know, all this debt that millennials have and you're on the train and you see 212 recruit, $100,000 a year after five years, un, um, unlimited um, sick leave, um, 27 days paid vacation and mm. opportunities for growth. And meanwhile, you're folding clothes at Macy's with your bachelor's. Mm. You know what I mean? So you're going to say, whoa, all right, 212 recruit it is. Right. You know, and it's crazy because so many people I've met on the job originally came to the city to be social workers. It's like people that met well yes. and they it just didn't pay the bills. So they want, they just need to pay their bills and they, they essentially suppress, they suppress their, their own morals to do the job. And they're that, in the belly of the beast. Exactly. That's, they, they have been chewed down. Exactly. And so, so when I give this example, yeah. I realize people don't understand the digestive process, but like literally our salad, when the spit in your mouth is designed to break down the food that comes in it, like it, it creates a system of enzymes and it triggers an entire digestive systemic response that is everything in that beast is designed to wear down any resistance the fact that you went in with the mission is a beautiful thing i mean you've got marcus garvey on your lapel pin the red black and green flag like clearly you came to this space mm -hmm. wanting to do what was right and what happened between the time that you entered and and you're realizing that this is not going to go the way it's going to go what was that like for you what was that wrestling process like particularly because you had a mission it's one thing if you just got to pay bills but you had a mission talk to us about that wrestling process so i'll first start with this essentially an epiphany right uh being born and raised in brooklyn and particularly in flatbush uh, west indian caribbean community you know uh black pride uh, Pan-Africanism was, mm. you know, through the Rastafari, Rastafari movement and, and other movements. It, it had always been a part of 
um, it, I just been always breathing it in without yeah. realizing, you know, yeah. a lot of reggae songs that played in the background. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, you would hear Marcus Garvey, et cetera. And my own dad, um, my father didn't speak English. So we a lot of our conversation was me translating the news for him. And I'll never forget. I think it was 94. I was a kid and he was crying. It was Mandela had just won. Mm. And and I didn't understand. I'm like, I thought black people in Africa, black man is the president. of right. Africa. You know, right. not understanding apartheid and everything. Um, so, but this, despite breathing in Pan-Africanism, um, it wasn't until I was about 19, 20 years old, a colleague at my previous job who, man, he put a book in my hand called The Destruction of Black Civilization. Mm, come on. I, I just, I, so I always had a great reading level, but I, didn't, yeah. I, didn't, I never liked reading. Mm. I could not put the book down. And we would have discussions in between, and then I picked up Asada, and then I picked up Malcolm X and the work of Dr. Walter Rodney, um, Joel Augustus Rogers, um, Eric Williams, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Torre, for the, you know, for those who don't know. And and I just I couldn't inhale the books fast enough, mm. so I went in armed with the with the with the mindset, and this is why they couldn't shake me. There was one incident where I had to kind of pull myself out. I was getting sucked in as I like I was getting pulled into the thinking of the system. I'll share that after. So. So, you know, I go in armed with the knowledge, with the mindset at 22 years old, firm in who I am as a black man, as an mm. African, et cetera. And because I can intellectually, you know, um, make my points, I'm a little naive at 22. I'm under the impression that now that I'm blue, you know, when I explain to them better ways to do things, <laughs> they're, they're going to be do receptive. It, yes. Yeah. <laughs> They've Ooh. got you've got books, you've got citations, right? you've got exactly. references. It, that's their system, right? Mm. Right? Peer reviews, et cetera, right. empirical data. Right. So I'm I'm thinking I'm speaking their English better than them. They're gonna be receptive to what I have to say. Mm. And like you said, like hitting a wall. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. Um and at first I was like, you know, I started suffering the retaliation from within, but I was willing to do that. Mm. If I if I have to not violate you yeah. and suffer that retaliation, then give it to me. I'll take it. Mm. Right? At home I go and cry, right? But in I, at work, I, I had the pride, the proudest walk ever. Mm. They didn't know how to get to me. It did get to me, but they didn't know that. Yeah. I, I wouldn't give them that satisfaction. Um, but then the sergeant's test came, and I I killed it. Mm. Right out of six thousand test takers, nine hundred and thirty-two passed. I was number eight on the list. Mm. That scared them because they're like, "Wait, we you are just radical. You yeah, smart, exactly." Mm. And now I can be a supervisor. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So that means I'll have subordinates that I can redirect. Mm. You know, and it being so wait, you are now in a position. Wait a minute, hold on. I just saw what time it is. Do you have to go? What? No. Okay. Amina, can you let the other folks know that we're gonna put, start that a little bit later? I want, I don't, I want to keep this going because we yeah. have a commercial break coming up yeah. in about six minutes because the man gonna cut us off. But I, now we just get into the good part, so I'm okay. gonna we gotta make some adjustments. Um, so you're smart. Mm -hmm. They can't deny it. Mm -hmm. But if you're a supervisor, you're in a position to redirect culture. Exactly. But it sounds like culture is one of the things that holds the NYPD together. You're dangerous. Exactly. And they realize that. So that's when, like a gag reflex, all the all the defense comes in to to, to basically steamroll me. Mm. Um, and that's you know some of it you saw in Crime and Punishment. That's when I made the decision to start recording, because I studied the Floyd case. That's the stop and frisk case. 
And I could not believe one by one as they took that stand and just lied. So let's pause there because the Floyd case, a lot of people hear Floyd and they think George Floyd. Mm. You all should know that there was a lawsuit filed in the state of in the city of New York that basically uh, the last name of the one of the, the plaintiffs was Floyd. Um, but they basically were alleging that stop and frisk and the policing practices were anti-black. Were, and you had data that showed that uh, over half a million New Yorkers are being stopped every year. And 85 percent of those New Yorkers were black and brown. And what people don't often realize is that eight out of 10 of those people. No, at that time, it was like seven out of 10 of those people, eight out of 10 of those people who were being stopped, questioned and frisked were not given a police summons, were not given a desk appearance ticket. There was no further intervention, which means they were being stopped, questioned and frisked while doing absolutely nothing wrong, which if that were happening to white people, we would call terrorism. And so there was a lot of and interestingly enough, I don't know if you saw the recent Gotham Gazette report that says right now under current. New York City leadership, those stops and frisks are up to over a million. And that's a whole other story for another topic. But I I say that to say there was a racial disparity there that was so significant that we were able to go into court Mm -hmm. and basically put an end to the stop and frisk practice as it was being applied in the city of New York because it was anti-constitutional. It was Mm anti-black in practice. So that's the Floyd case that he's referencing there. I just want to make sure that people were clear. Yeah. Go ahead. So, So in studying that case, I realized if you cannot prove it, and, you know, they, they're going to just lie. And also there was an officer, a white cop named Adrian Schoolcraft, who recorded, they came into his home and threw him in a psych ward for trying to expose this oh, thing. Oh, snap. And I'm like... He was white officer? He was white. And he had a recorder in his breast pocket and also one in his room. Oh, snap. When they slammed him to the ground, the one in the breast pocket, it, 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 you know, it, it, they saw it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's never been vouchered. It just disappeared. Had he not had the recording in the room going, it would have been his word against theirs. Wow. And he would he would not have been able to prove it. So I was like, I got to record everything now with these people. Mm. Um, but yeah, so um, the New York Times article comes out. It It's like a, an earthquake hit one police plaza, the police headquarters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is under Mayor de Blasio. So they're forced to, he, who's a self-proclaimed progressive. Mm. So they're forced to make adjustments, right? And then when the documentary comes out, simultaneously, so first we get the Floyd ruling, the Floyd, Floyd versus NYC case that she just explained, right, which, which makes stop and frisk go from ne- nearly 700,000 to less than 50,000 in one year. Yeah. Then we which, have, which tells us it was a choice, yeah. right? The, all, that, all that harassing of black and brown people, that was a choice that was being made driven by this culture. The quota, specifically. The quota yeah, culture. Yeah. 20, mm. So like friends that went to work in East New York, they had to get 25 a month. And, and I always tell people to, to, to conduct a proper stop and frisk within constitutional parameters, you need reasonable suspicion. Yeah. So you literally have the power to suspend the Bill of Rights temporarily. Mm. That is a great power. Mm. You don't play with that. Yeah. You know, it's 700,000 stops nearly. You understand? But we go from because of that ruling, which the judge made the right ruling. They tried to destroy her after that. But 700,000 to nearly 700,000 to less than 50,000. And then the late great Kenneth Thompson the mm. district attorney of Brooklyn, who we lost way too soon. Yeah. He basically said he refuses to prosecute less than 25 grams of marijuana. And Bratton, at the time, the commissioner says the city's going to go back back to the bad old days. Yep. Marijuana enforcement is at the crux of broken windows, et cetera. And then summonses get decriminalized to civil summonses. So we have all this stuff happening in a short period of time. This is reform. It, this exactly. is what making it's the system work better working. looks like. It's the yeah. work work. Because I hate the department would sit and write and repeat the same data I just gave you. And make it seem as if things are better. No, you you fought against all of that. Mm. Don't you're in no moral position to ever claim that, right, right? Right. So, but then what I like to call the final nail in the coffin: twelve cops, crime and punishment. I so it's so publicly they'd always say there's no quotas, but privately they'd be like, you better do your job, right? Right. right. I knew something was coming differently when privately they were saying 
there's no more quotas. So mm. as much as they denied it, um, they said if someone is caught using a quota, they'll be reprimanded. So they'll never den- uh, admit it. But right. that was the closest that we were ever going to get. And you saw the difference. And I'll be honest with you, Gen Z, you know, I'd say anybody born after 1999, what I knew, what the generation before me knew, it never really hit them. Mm. But they ride, they ride their bikes on the sidewalk. Yeah. Right. They do it all. And yeah. like, I feel so good when I'm able to see that because I know that the work has worked. But unfortunately, things are going in the wrong direction. They really are because we're at a point right now where, again, as I said, under current leadership, which is largely black, mm-hmm. right? Also, city right now led by someone who themselves was a former cop. And we are seeing, according to the reports, that the stop, question, and frisks have escalated exponentially. So that going from 700,000 to 50,000 in a year under a progressive white mayor, we no longer have a white mayor. We have a mayor who was a part of this system and now stops under this current leadership at just under a million. And the racial, dis- this is the part that kills me about that. The racial disparity is back. Like it, it never really, even when we got down to 50,000, the racial disparity is here. And 95% of the people, according to the Gotham Gazette, are now black and brown who are being stopped. So we have gone from decreasing stop, question, and frisk and, and this sort of culture of quotas under a progressive white mayor to now under current leadership at a point where not only are the racial disparities worse, but so are the overall numbers. And that, I think, is going to be something we're going to have to grapple with. Uh, But Edwin Raymond, you know, you have been talking a lot with us about uh, the way that culture drives what is happening in the NYPD. And you'd mentioned before that those numbers had come down when they were were forced to bring those numbers down. And now we're seeing the exact opposite. What is at, you think, the heart of driving this now exponential from 50,000 to over a million in just the past two years? What do you think is driving this return to what feels to me as an activist, you know, as somebody who is an attorney who deals with this stuff, what is it that you think is at the heart of returning these numbers in the NYPD with stop and frisk to these astronomical spaces with a racial disparity that we didn't even see under Michael Bloomberg? Yeah. Um, in short, the answer is the leadership, right? Mm. The leadership, if you, if any, any organization where there are issues, you can find, you can find the source to be the leadership. And you know, before I, I get deeper into that, I do have to acknowledge something that's often missed um, because people are, you know, intuitively they'll say, well, the mayor was a cop. So what do you expect? In translating the news for my dad as a boy, I will never forget being, I think I was 11 years old and the Abner Louima situation happened. Oh right. Yes. And it happened literally yes. four or five blocks away from where I lived. Mm. And, it, and, you know, Abner Louima was Haitian. For those who don't know. When I was translating, I didn't even, I could, he was basically sodomized with the broomstick. That's right. And I remember being stuck because I, I didn't know that was a thing. You know, I was 11 mm. and I didn't know how to translate that. But my dad caught the context right. and, and his face dropped, right? I'll never forget that day. And, um, but then I'll never forget probably the next day seeing a group of officers who are off duty in suits in front of one police plaza speaking truth to power. I'm like, wait, these are cops? You know, they were called 100, uh, 100 Black, blacks in, in law yeah, enforcement. enforcement yes, right? yes, yes, yes. And yes. At, at, at the main speaker was the current mayor, mm. right? And I was like, wow, this guy's brave. And yeah. then after that, I started watching and paying attention. And, and I knew that by the time I joined the police department, nearly 20 years late, about 20 years later, that if I ever wanted to be outspoken, mm. I could be. 
right? Because so, he had helped pave the way for yes. that. He, and, and it was that oh, 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement. Mm-hmm. There was... Um, James E. Davis. Yeah, yes. and National Organization of Black Law Enforcement exactly. Officers. There was a vibrant voice exactly. for, of black officers within the police department, so, NYPD. Yeah. So that's the mayor that I know, mm. that I remember, you know? Yeah. Um, then he left and be, at, at, as a captain and became a state senator and sponsored very important progressive legislation raise the age that's right um raising the age of criminal responsibility from 16 to 18 crucial um even the quota bill the quota law Mm -hmm. that i'm using that we've used to sue federally he that he's the one that closed the loophole so Mm. so it leaves me confused and and you know i'm not gonna lie like it's not an easy thing to speak about because that's not the man that i i thought i i understood yeah um but people say you know that's just politics i'm like yeah but I've known this man for 10 years. I'm, I don't recognize what I'm seeing. But the one thing that I can absolutely pinpoint that's a flaw is the leadership. Many of the people who have ascended under this very short administration, it just makes no sense for them to be there. You know, mm-hmm. and I'll say it. The chief of patrol, John Shell, does not belong in that seat. Why do you say that? Because when I was, a, I'll never forget, I was a recruit in the academy in 2008 and we had just learned use of force. And we learned that you cannot shoot at a moving vehicle Unless deadly physical force is being used from the vehicle, which doesn't include the vehicle itself. Mm. And, you know, even we in the academy was like, whoa, what do you mean? Like The, the vehicle, we've seen it in movies a million right. times. That you vehicle is a just, weapon. You just see set it off? Like, <laughs> right. what are you talking about? Right? Not but, right? I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, the Queen Latifah scene. I mean, it was a good scene. Right? Right? We, we get it. <laughs> and literally just days after learning that, then Lieutenant John Shell shoots someone dead Jesus. in a vehicle. What is that man doing as the chief of patrol today? Mm. You know, but patrol ha- is is the priest. So it's broken down into three bureaus, transit, housing and patrol. Patrol are the precincts. It's about 100, 101 precincts. Mm. He is responsible. Every commander, every chief under him, is they answer to him. He answers to two or three people. Uh, someone with that past. Mm. Does not belong in that position. Well, now, was he reprimanded for that? Do we know if there was any any? Uh, yeah, if y'all could see the look that this brother giving me right now, <laughs> he's, he's like, "Larry, come come on, sis." You know, come it's on. unfortunate, but you know, back in those days, it was so easy to manipulate the narrative to make it fall within legal parameters. Mm. You know, it's still that way, and you can. It's you a can little harder because of cameras. Oh. Cameras change the game. Okay. But there's ways to make Body cameras or cell phone cameras? Both. Mm. And security cameras. But mm. the thing with body cameras is you're responsible for turning them on. Yeah. So you're literally... Because there's two types of radio... Uh, two types of in, um, encounters. Radio run and pickup jobs. Mm. A radio run means you're getting over the radio, dispatch is giving it to you. You're supposed to turn on the camera right then and there. Mm. That's hard to manipulate because if there's too much of a gap between the encounter and the radio run, then you could be reprimanded for not immediately turning mm. on your body cam. But if it's a pickup... You could be there violating people for 20 minutes. And then when you get what you need, you turn it on and make it seem as if you just arrived to the scene. And if another camera is not rolling to show that you were there for 20 minutes violating people, it is what it is. Mm. You understand? Mm -hmm. Um, Again, things that you have to be inside to know. So prior to any criticism of this administration, I have to make it clear that this man cut through the thick as a police officer who was simultaneously an activist. He was a model for what you were trying to do. Very much so. Very wow. much so, which wow. is what leaves me so confused. And this is the first time I'm ever saying this publicly. I've I've tried so hard to avoid, I'll be honest. Same. Because I'm trying because the thing is I'm not in the room, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't immediately just 
you know, criticize someone. Maybe Especially a, when you have a, a history that yeah, shows exa- them doing exactly, good work. Like, exactly, it's complicated, right? yes. So you have to give it time for whatever they have planned to root itself. Yeah. But after almost two years now, I, I don't know. I, I'm seeing, I know what, I, I'd see John Shell as the chief of patrol and it makes absolutely no sense to me. Mm. Um, so yeah, so leadership is is what I would say is is the first part that why we're seeing things going in this direction. So one of the things um, that has happened since George Floyd, I call it the George Floyd promotions, all throughout the nation, Ooh. all throughout the nation, black folks are all of a sudden in charge of police departments. Mm. In no other mm-hmm. institution mm-hmm. can you see such an overrepresentation of black people in charge of anything, right? Wow. But yet we still get Tyree Nichols. Mm. It is not the answer. Damn it. Right? It's cosmetic diversity. Yeah. Right? But what 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 needs to be done, right? And I would have never known this had I not been on the inside. I call them the justice minded. When I became an f- official whistleblower, first in 2016, and then with the film in 2018, literally over 2,000 cops throughout the nation have reached out, sharing wow. the issues in their respective departments, wishing that there was a, a safe haven so they can speak out. They said, I respect what you're doing, but I'm not ready to risk it all like that. Right. Like I grew and it's up- not even just risking career. There's a safety component oh, yeah. to this because oh, if you are... Death, con- threats. death threats, I would yeah. I would imagine at the very least, but yeah. if you're out on the field and you're known to be someone who is just as minded as you're saying, can you still count on your friends and family oh, in blue to yeah. help come support you and defend you while you're out doing very dangerous yeah. work? And that was the end of the, the documentary. I got set up by my own cops, you know, Damn. by subordinates, which was right. tricky because... It's not retaliation from the top. Right. So the top ran with it. They knew they would never get me in those crosshairs again. Mm. But I survived that. I had to give a pint of blood, but I survived that one. Um, but the justice minded, mm. right? This is the voice that has been missing from the conversation, right? We, we, we have two very polarizing voices. Fuck the cops and police can do no wrong. It's just a few bad apples. Mm. The, 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 I'm telling you, the bridge between, the true bridge between that, because we use that bridging the gap, bridging the gap, the real bridge of the justice-minded. And I'm, act, I'm asking my fellow activists, even my left, my folks that are more left, even my abolitionists, look into the justice-minded. They exist. They're quiet because it's not a soft landing. Mm. But this is what we have to do as a society, create a softer landing for them. This is what we must demand from our elected officials, from those running for office, from on all levels of government, local, state, and federal. Mm. If you, if we would create uh, an environment where cops can speak out about the detriments that they're witnessing, I promise you we can get a better system. Had I not been on the job, in the job, to experience this firsthand, I probably would be an abolitionist today. You know? Wow. And the reason why I'm not is because, I get, again, I've seen under the hood, I've seen behind the curtain, and the justice-minded is the voice that's needed in the room. How so, do we create that softer landing? What does that look like? It's the safe havens are needed, right? And we have to basically put, the, like, look what's happening in Atlanta right now with, with Dre, right? Mm. The, the, the mayor. First, we was like, yo, we got a mayor named Dre. Yeah. But now people are very divided with, this, with Cop, Cop City. Cop City, right? yeah. We've been talking about that a lot here, yeah. The mayor named Dre... It's cool, but make is who's Dre gonna appoint? You know, mm. find justice instead of Chief John Shell. Imagine if it was a justice-minded person in that mm. position. You understand? Yeah. You know, and I know some people are cynical, like it would never happen. It can. It could. So one of the other things I've learned: sometimes these folks really believe they're doing God's work. They think they're doing what's right. Do they really? They. I, 
I struggle with it, but they do. Mm. I've spoken to them and they've oversimplified. What it, it comes from not understanding us as a people, our culture, our environment. Yeah. So they think, you know, well, this is a job. This is a location where people, bodies are dropping and seven-year-olds and 85-year-olds are getting shot. You know, we have to be more aggressive. You know, I said, okay, that's, in terms of the people involved in those, that type of violence, I, I'm with you. Yeah. But the externalities, the, 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 you know, the collateral damage, and that's the part that's not in their formula. They don't, it's honestly, it's because we're dehumanized in their minds. Mm. They don't realize it though. Yeah. You know, I've had, one thing about me, I was never shy to discuss race because I went in with my empirical facts, right? right? At 22. <laughs> Deconstruction of African civilization. Like you know? destruction, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but when speaking to my white colleagues, I was like, I've yet to meet anyone who even knew what redlining was mm. in the police department. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They are so yeah. clueless about race, the lasting effects of race, and the one, the most important Which is thing. by design. Systemic racism. It right. is like, right. it doesn't exist to them. Race is something that's to the individual. How can a system be racist? A system is not a person. I've mm. literally heard that from colleagues. Yeah. They don't get it. Right. There are some who are bigots and they, they, they know exactly what they're doing and why. But there are so many who don't realize that this just isn't the way. Mm. But then I also met Larry, white cops from Nassau, from, you know, the outskirts of New York City, who themselves were like, whoa, this is what goes on. Mm. Then I, I was like, if we police like this in Nassau, I would never be a cop. You know what I you know what type Ooh, of teenager I was? Listen, you know, and there's this there's concept that I've been cu- toying with Edwin Raymond, former NYPD officer and author of the latest book, An Inconvenient, An Inconvenient Cop. Uh, there's this idea I've been toying with that it, it's hate crime policing. If you were only policing black communities in this way and not that the same officer does not police white communities in this way, then the reality is the only difference is the race. And that is a hate crime because if I shoot you for whatever reason, but I shoot you because you black, that's a hate crime. And so this idea, you said that we are dehumanized and they don't even realize it. I think that is truer than a lot of people know. This book, Inconvenient Cop, talk with us about what you want the readers to take away. Okay. Um, so, I literally just ripped my chest open and poured my soul into this this body of work. Mm. All right. 15 years of analyzing every, turning every page, lifting every stone, just really analyzing the things that peer activists have been, don't know to call for. Yeah. Right. It's one of those things that you can never speculate. You have to be on the inside. So it is a memoir. Um, so you learn a lot about me, Edwin Raymond, the person, especially my childhood, how rough it was. But then, you know, I basically explain to the reader all the the, the nuances um, of why we get the type of policing that we get, why it's spread to other parts of the nation, Mm. and most importantly, what we need to do about it. That's the part we need the most. I know. I I realize that. I mean, we want to know about you, too. Yeah, no, of course. (laughs) We we want all that stuff, too. But that's the part. Because there are so few of you who, one, survive these types of experiences without either being uh, uh, subsumed by the beast or, you know, they go quietly into the night if they make it out alive. And so having access to this information, which you've shared in this book, An Inconvenient Cop, is absolutely crucial. And I know that you have a a pretty big event coming up that you guys are going to be. And it's not not a book signing. Like This is like an all-out yes. event it's an activation of something that we have been waiting for mm. you understand um you know shout out to the so first book events are hyper focused on the author and the book this we're starting this off with first it will it's what would have been the 50th birthday of, of george floyd wow. so his brother terence floyd oh will, will will open up with a tribute mm. right 
And then we're going to have speakers. You know, shout out to, to all the speakers. My sister Tamika Mallory, oh, Dr. Yeah. Ilyasa Shabazz. Mm. Um, we have um, Sean King, um, um, Terrence, who I mentioned, and the public advocate, Jemani Williams. Oh, right? the, yeah, these good are brother. Different folks that have different opinions. You know, some controversial, some people have, feel different ways, but we have to be willing to get in the room and have this conversation. Right. Afterwards, uh, Malik, the actor Malik Yoba will interview me about the actual book. And then we are going to present, we are going to present something very, very unique. You mm. understand? My team and I were, we're at one point we're like, we just got to let the people know. But then we're like, no, we want them to be surprised by this. Um, but you know, thirty-four officers who have all become whistleblowers after watching *Crime and Punishment* will mm. be flying in. All right, all around the nation. One is wow. coming from London, Metropolitan Cop. Oh my God! They will all be flying in to join us that day. Mm. Right? We have a lot of um, a lot of celebrities going to be the NFL, NBA players, a lot of actors, yeah. musicians, yeah. people who have reached out to me, um, especially after George Floyd, and said anything that you're doing, any way you, you know I can help with my platform, yep. let me know. I told them all, meet me in Brooklyn on this day. Mm. What's the day? I want to go. It's going to be Saturday, October 14th, 2023 mm. at King's Theater in Brooklyn. Oh, that's a big space. Yeah, Y'all going to pack that out. Yeah, yeah. 6 p.m. will be the, there will be a red carpet, right? At 6 p.m., 7 p.m. is showtime. And someone said, you know, you know, I, I support you and I'm going to come, but this kind of looks Hollywood. I said, listen, listen, listen. Three years ago, the world stopped. Mm. We're in the middle of a global pandemic that most people will, for most people, will be once in a lifetime. While the world was getting ready to end, the one thing that we can count on, like the sun rising, was the NYPD violating Come us. Come on. Okay? Come on. Because I will never forget the week in May, maybe two weeks before George Floyd, where NYPD cop was literally slapping the shit out of someone for not social distancing. Yep. And the same NYPD was handing out masks That's in, right. George, in Greenpoint That's right. and Williamsburg. That's right. Okay? The one, imagine the world is ending. But one thing you can count on is the NYPD to violate black people. Mm. Okay? Every other subject, from climate change to, to you name it, breast cancer gets a grand platform. This subject, more than anything, deserves it. Because in the middle of the world ending, it wasn't climate change. Right. It wasn't even the pandemic itself. Right. With all distractions settled, it was the policing of black bodies that got everybody outside. Right? From, from China... To, 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 to Algeria, to Russia, UK, Canada, South America, United States. It was the policing of people that look like me that got everybody outside. Mm. So it deserves this stage. Come on. Come on. Give us the dates again. And how can people, can they get tickets? How can people Yeah, so just go on kingstheater.com. Okay. Um, and you'll see it right there. Saturday, October 14th, 2023. Um, it's, it's where I was born and raised. It, mm. It's, there's no, like, there's really no better place to do this, um, I, I can't wait to do this. It, it, it's what we need, and and I can't wait for people to see the justice. My and some of them, they you know they some of them are whistleblowers that you know have their own platforms. But many cops that are going to be there are justice minded, but not ready to speak. I yeah. the objective is for everyone to leave feeling empowered and ready, and and mm. re just restructure the focus and the targets. Mm. 
Mm. You understand? Again, is this a silver bullet? I would never claim that. Right. But it is one of the pillars that's needed to, to support the foundation of the change that, we, that, that, that we're hoping to see. If we can make being justice-minded sexy, mm. right? If we can make it Hollywood, exactly. then that will do a lot to ensure that there is a much softer landing for other officers who, like you, maybe they went in with a mission, maybe they didn't, but they see what's happening and yeah. they know it's wrong and they don't want to retire having made their living brutalizing people in this way. Yeah. Edwin Raymond, I'm a little worried about your, your safety, brother. I hope you got some, you, you're secure because we, you Listen, know, I, you ain't got I, to give us no details. Yeah, I'm just saying, it, we're we going to pray for you. Yeah, it, it's not an easy discussion. Um, mm. I'm sorry. Take your time. Yeah, this is the part that people don't see. Um, we we hear I'm sorry, it. I'm sorry. We hear it even in your silence. We hear the toll that this has taken, and the impact that this has. Where where I had to bring myself mentally to to take on this fight. No one should have to do that, especially for work. Mm. But this isn't just work, you understand? But there's no, there's no result that I haven't accepted. And you either understand what I mean by that, or you don't. Mm. Um, I deserve to live a full life. I deserve to have a family one day. But I'm ready for anything. Well, you are right now talking to millions of people who recognize, no, no, please do not apologize, who recognize the difficulty of this conversation. And I'm going to ask that all the many millions of you who are listening right now, wherever you are listening from, that you would just do what we know to do in our faith houses and you would send your prayers, send the prayers of protection. May the ancestors cover, guide, and provide wisdom to you. May the angels be surrounding you, your people, your team. And I'm just going to ask that everyone in Urban View and Nubia right now that you say a prayer. We have had a lot of conversation, a lot of conversation about the brutalization that happens to black people at the hands of the police. And very rarely, maybe this might you might be the first officer in my entire life who I've ever known to take this battle on the way that you've had. And I remember years ago seeing that documentary and wrestling in the audience and being uh, proud of y'all, but mad at the same time. Now, you knew it was. But realizing that if we don't have people who can try and who make a difference, then our communities continue to be subjected to this sort of brutalization. So I'm going to be praying for you. I know this audience is praying for you. And as conflicted as many of us are about the role of black officers, the reality is we cannot understand the role of the black officer without understanding the history of enslavement and colonization in this country. And the fact that it was black people whose bodies were being brutalized at the hand of any white person who had been deputized to take on the mantle of policing. And what you're doing, it isn't just the NYPD. You're taking on a 400-year-old demon. We call it the demons yeah. of white supremacy um, in this space. And, and yeah. we're grateful. Thank we're you. Grateful. Thank you for acknowledging that. Um, I, you know, I'll jump back in. Um, um, you know, two, two, two and a half years ago, I ran for city council. You know, I, I wasn't successful. And it was it was ironic to me because... You know, to run for city council after George Floyd was like the worst timing in the world mm. um, because a lot of the pushback was, we voting for no fucking cop, right? Mm. And some of them they weren't willing to, to look deeper, which I understood. But what shocked me was the reasons why people believe reform was impossible 
were reasons that we can literally just cut and paste and apply to the entire American system. Mm. And yet if somebody was ambitious and says, I'm going to run for office and make change, we support that. So why is it that when it comes to police officers, we don't? Because at the end of the day, right, cops, yes, are the most tangible, visible parts of the system, but they ain't the system. They're the mm. muscle of the system. The system is everything yeah. else. Yeah. And yet we don't say throw the whole country in the garbage. I mean, some people well, do. I mean, <laughs> right? I have heard and been a part of them conversations as well. Right? So, but, you know, we, we're not saying abandon and just repatriate, et cetera, et cetera, which is, you know, some people, again, have, no matter how ambitious someone is, um, despite how daunting and tedious the task is, we support those who at least say they want to make change. I don't think there's a reason to, to, to for the threshold, you know, the line to be at policing. We, mm. If we create the safe haven, I promise you that the, the justice minded will surface. Like you'll be like, damn, I didn't even know there's that many of you. Right. You understand? Right. And they've reached out to me. And, and many of them, you know, it, it's I didn't expect all that. I'll be honest with you. I said what I'm going to do different about being a whistleblower is instead of putting out this crucial information and hoping that the people know what to do with it. I'm going to find the activists that usually are protesting cops to stand elbow to elbow with and mm. shout out to the justice league, you know, Tamika yeah. Mallory, yep. Carmen Perez, um, Angelo Pinto, my son, Jules, Linda Sassoa, you know, mm. at first it was Angelo, my brother, Angelo, I love you to death. Angelo, we did a, two or three panels together. So when I sat with him, we listened to the recordings. I told him a New York times article is coming out he was like, all right, I got to take this to Tamika. Mm. When at first, Tamika was like, what? You bring, Hell no. You're bringing who? <laughs> you're doing what, Angelo? You lost your mind? But then when I met Tamika, I think who I am, like she saw me for who yeah. I was. And it was, she was like, I guess we're going to try this cop shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And um, the article comes out. It, it hits even harder than I thought. Then, you know, I did the NBC piece with Sarah Wallace. Shout out to Sarah Wallace on NBC. And that's when me and the others sat in the studio, right, speaking truth to power. That's something we'd never seen. Active cops in the studio speaking truth to power like that. And then, um, yeah, it was, you know, we, we had the activists next to us. Um, Civil Liberties joined. Some groups was like, yeah, Tamika, you bugging, <laughs> right? But she basically galvanized a group of, of different activists. Um, and that's what was different. But aside from doing that, I didn't expect to survive this. And, and, I, and you know... And I mean that in every way, whether it was my life, definitely my career. I thought the way I was like, you know, when I reached to the point where I was like, I'm ready for whatever. I said, I don't care about your suspension. I'm mm -hmm. ready for so much more. I don't care about your write up. I don't care about anything that you, you're going to fire me. I don't care anymore. This needs to be done. But then I survived it. And mm. I'm not going to lie. I didn't know what to do with that at first. Mm. But I realized this is what I have to do. And I couldn't do that while being on it. I have to... Sh Michael K. Williams, my brother, who I miss every day, mm. he told me, May he rest. He said, Edwin, don't stand in the spotlight. Be the spotlight and shine it on others. So this is why I had to leave the New York City Police Department. I am going to shine this light on all the justice-minded cops that I could um, to the point that I'm not even needed, where, to the point where we restructure our society, our nation, where if you are part of an institution and you see detriments, you can speak out so we can get the changes that we need instead of facing retaliation. 
His name is Edwin Raymond, former NYPD officer, very successful in the in the I mean, smart brother. We heard your testimony and, and what you experienced. His book, An Inconvenient Cop, comes out in October. What's the release date for the book? The official release date is uh, Tuesday, October 17th. Um, again, we're having this this activation on Saturday, October 14th. You do leave with the book as a tangible, but it is not about the book. It's, yeah. it's so much bigger. It's about this movement that you have helped to birth. We're grateful. Thank you. This is going to cause a lot of people to wrestle internally. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that because that's the type of wrestling, which one of your former examples, yeah. uh, the current mayor, when yeah. he was standing out in front of one police plaza doing what a lot of what inspired, I think, you and officers like you. We need to have that systematized. Yeah. Right. So that that sort of reform has a shot. Yeah. I want to share, you know, during my epiphany, my journey, I, I ran into the. Um, the work of Tim Wise, who mm. was, you know, anti-racism activist, um, you know, and I reached out to him and he responded, which I was like, wow, OK, this is awesome. You know, we 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 started an online dialogue. But then what I found was in certain black spaces, when I would bring up his work, they were like, <laughs> well, you know, the fact that he was a white man. Right, right, right. You know, and it bothered me because his work to me was is 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 profound. But and I shared that with him and, and his answer is why I will forever consider him an ally. He said, Edwin, if black people simply accepted me with open arms, that means they didn't learn anything. Damn. All right. And he ain't wrong. Yeah, because historically, you know, he he said if you, you, he he would never blame a black person for not just taking him, you know, at at his word because historically, you know, what what we've been through. And I was like, wow, you know, that's a good point to make. So anyone going through that, that, that dissonance, you know, that, that struggle, who are conflicted. I get it. Believe me, I get it. Um, but I'm asking you just to show up. You understand? You can show up and say, you know, this was all nonsense. But I, I don't think that'll be the case. But but show up. You understand? Because we have to at least be willing to have the conversation, even if it's to criticize. I want to hear your critiques. I, I remain very dialectical in all of my arguments. There might be something that I have a blind spot on that I need you to shine the light on. You know, do that for me. Find, let me fine-tune my formula. He is Edwin Raymond author of An Inconvenient Cop, and I believe that there are a lot of inconvenient truths that are buried in this book. <laughs> yeah. What are your social medias? How, uh, how can people follow you um, online? Raymond, underscore for, for Instagram, just Edwin Raymond for Facebook, Edwin Raymond NYC Twitter, and um, I finally made a TikTok. <laughs> uh, Edwin <laughs> Raymond NYC, also uh, An Inconvenient Cop. We just, you know, for that, we're going to just, um, you know, make it about the book. All right. Yeah. We appreciate you. God bless. Really appreciate you being with us, giving us so much of your time. Thank you.